Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Revelation number 12, if my counting's correct. And just to remind you of our goals, our first goal in the series is to take a little bit of the fear and the mystery out of understanding the book. I don't know how many times people have said to me over the last couple of months, Charles, I'm afraid of Revelation. And maybe as we're going through, I'm learning some things. Well, hopefully we're moving a little, removing a little bit of the mystery and a little bit of the fear. Our other goal is to make sure that we're understanding and working with the main themes. I know some of you are disappointed that we're not diving into the details and dissecting this and dissecting that and arguing about this point. Our goal is to look at the main themes because if we understand the main themes, we will be unified. If we fight about the details, we're going to be divided. Our third goal is that we'll actually live out the main themes. You know, one of the things you need to keep in mind, you've probably heard me say this a number of times, Revelation is a discipleship book. It's not a book that you read and then draw an end times map. It's not a book where you can predict what's going to happen in great detail. It's a discipleship book. Revelation was written to a group of people experiencing persecution, living in a context contrary to what they were believing. And so Jesus dictated to John large portions. God showed John uh, images, visions, to help them bear up and persevere in those hard times. And hopefully a corollary of those goals is that we'll work together. Rather than dividing and fighting and separating, we'll be unified on the main themes as we live that stuff out. Well, this morning we come to Revelation 19, and we're going to call this chapter Extreme Salvation. And Extreme Salvation, there's two edges to that. you like a two-edged sword? The one side is justice. And I don't know of a single person that doesn't want justice to prevail. You're going to see justice. You see it through the Scripture. We're going to see it in chapter 19 but you also see grace. Because the reality is, if all we get is justice, then we're all doomed. We're as guilty as anybody else. We need grace, and God brings grace and justice together. So if you have your Bibles, or you have your phone, your iPad, whatever you use, I'm going to read through the chapter. It's not that long. Um, just so you kind of get a, a view of the landscape, then we'll come back and work our, or work our way through by pointing out a few of the obvious facts. i got to warn you right up front, Revelation 19 is kind of like PG-13. Uh, so there's some gruesome stuff in here. Um, follow along as I read. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne. And they cried, Amen! Hallelujah! Then a voice from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him both great and small. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah! For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. 
For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. At this I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, Don't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and with your brothers and sisters who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for it is the spirit of prophecy who bears testimony to Jesus. And I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are like many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and the mighty of their horses and riders and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs on his behalf. With these signs, he had uh, deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the lake of fire of burning sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider of the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. So there. All right, well, let's kind of fly over and, and see what's happening. Notice that chapter is all about extreme contrast. There are a number of contrasts that are mentioned, and we don't have time to look at all of them, but let me mention a couple. First of all, did you notice there were two invitations? Uh, the first invitation is the invitation to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And just in case you haven't noticed, uh, it takes a lot of work and a lot of preparation to have a wedding. I know my youngest daughter got married this past summer, and there's a whole lot of preparation that goes on. First of all, save the date gets sent a number of months before, then invitations get sent, then you wait with bated breath for the RSVPs to come back, and you're hoping some people don't come, and other people do come, and invitations go out. But the reality is, invitations to a wedding are kind of joyful. It's a celebration. You get together of a couple that's getting married, and maybe you know one, or maybe you know the other, and this is their big day, and you gather together to celebrate the union of this new marriage as it begins. And so we see, in that chapter I read, the invitation to the wedding supper of the Lamb, to a wedding reception. Did you notice the other invitation? It's an invitation to the birds to come and gorge themselves on the flesh of the defeated army. 
just in case you don't, you don't want to go to that invitation, right? You don't want to go to that party. So I was thinking of a contrast. Maybe it goes like this. You're invited to a wedding celebration, and you know it's going to be the best party ever, or you're invited to a judicial hearing. Your hearing. That's a whole different ballgame, isn't it? Two different invitations. There's a big contrast. The one invitation to a wedding, a celebration. The other invitation to a defeat, to a battle. Invitation to the bird. It's kind of interesting how it says it. The beast gathers together the army to wage war against the one on the white horse. Before the battle's wage, God summons the, bee, summons the birds to come because the victory is guaranteed. They're gathering the forces to fight against the warrior. And all the while, God calls the birds to come because the defeat of his enemies is guaranteed. Interesting. Two invitations. You also have two women. Do you notice that? Uh, the one woman is the prostitute called Babylon. The other is the bride who's been given garments by God and has prepared herself for the wedding. Again, there's a contrast, right? Now, it's kind of um, very commonplace in the Bible to have prostitution, adultery, immorality used not just for prostitution, adultery, and immorality, but it's used figuratively to refer to sin and rebellion against God. And you can see why, right? Marriage is a relationship of exclusivity. And if a marriage person, if, a, if someone in the marriage does not keep that vow of faithfulness, that's a picture of human beings that have been made in God's image, called to live in covenant with him. And if you turn your back on that relationship and you're faithless, that is living out the immorality, the adultery, figuratively, that is often described. And so adultery, prostitution, often used as a figure in the Bible to refer to rebellion, faithlessness, and sin. And there you see the two women. One, the bride is wearing white, a sign of purity. The other, the prostitute who is living in faithlessness, sin, and shame. And that reminds us, and we, we won't talk about two cities, but they represent two cities, right? The prostitute is Babylon, and Babylon's the influence behind Rome. Babylon's the influence of all those nasty things in the Scripture. The bride, right, the new Jerusalem, that city, the picture of God's people, the place where God's community dwells, and the place where they get lived out, or where they live out in faithfulness. You also have two leaders. And did you notice, if you were here last week, did you notice, the two leaders in this battle are both the second persons in the two trinities. So we have the genuine trinity, father, son. He's the one riding the horse. You have the dragon and the beast. Both second persons are waging the battle. So the second person of the genuine trinity, Jesus, riding in battle, the beast gathers together the nations of the world and leads them into battle. So there we see the two leaders coming together to wage war against each other. Two teams. We've been looking at two teams from the beginning. You have Team Dragon and Team Lamb. And Dragon's not going to show up till the next chapter. Um, but the false prophet and the beast, they're, just, they're taken captive and they're sentenced in this chapter, the dragon next chapter. Um, we've got two teams. These two teams gather to battle. And whatever position you take, is this an actual battle that's going to take place in the future, as some say? 
Is this a figurative battle that's been waged over time repeatedly as the forces of good and the forces of evil battle? Is this the gospel advancing in the first century and the victory coming in that way? There are two teams, Team Dragon and Team Lamb. Don't miss the big picture. Which team are you on? Who is your leader? You determine which team you're on by the leader you follow. Are you following the lamb? Are you following the false prophet who deceives and is intimidated from doing what is right? Also, two feasts, we've already alluded to these. The marriage supper of the lamb. The supper actually isn't in this chapter. Uh, That'll come later. We'll look at that next week. Two feasts. Feast at the end of the chapter. The birds are feasting, feasting on the carcasses of the defeated army. The feast of the lamb. The wedding supper of the lamb. The current of the whole Bible's been moving there. And now we're just a couple chapters away as we come to the culmination of all that Scripture has spoken of. I want to take a couple minutes to talk about extreme intimacy. And here's what I mean by that. It's not coincidental that the Bible uses marriage to refer to our relationship with Jesus and the relationship that we should have. Um, Now, the way marriages worked back then, a little different than today, here's how marriages worked. The parents would get together. Both my daughters made a really good decision, but I vote for parents making the decision. Doesn't make a lot more sense, parents, right? After all, what did a young kid, they don't know, right? Well, anyway, back then, in the good old days, the parents would get together and they would sign, they would create, they'd draft, and they'd sign a contract. That doesn't mean that the couple kind of move in together, um, but that does mean they are betrothed to each other. So the parents sign the contract, and then they separate. Eventually, the groom, he goes to prepare a place for his bride. He will come back and get the bride, and then the wedding actually happens. But here's an important part, and you need to know this because Christmas is coming. They are considered to be husband and wife once the contract is signed. So once the betrothal happens, they are considered husband and wife. That's why Mary and Joseph were betrothed. They were considered husband and wife even before they married. That's why Joseph decided when Mary's found to be pregnant, Joseph decided to divorce her quietly. The wedding hadn't happened yet. Yeah, but they're in that intermittent period, right? Okay, well, you need to know that because we're in that intermittent period when you read Revelation 19. And so the betrothal, right, the invitations went out. The RSVPs are being collected. The wedding is now on the way, but there is that husband-wife relationship taking place in the meantime. So here's how it reads in verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. Now, do you ever notice the probably the greatest need that people have is the need for intimacy. And here's what I mean by that. You need someone who knows you and still loves you. And sometimes that's hard to believe, right? <laughs> because we often think if they really knew, well, we need there's this need inside of all of us, right? To be known but still accepted in love. That's kind of intimacy, right? And we all have that craving. 
Um, how many of you have ever heard of the five love languages already? You ever heard of that? Yeah, most of you have. Do you know what those love languages actually are? So whether it's words of appreciation, acts of service, gifts, physical touch, right? All those, hey, what do those love languages communicate? Intimacy. I know you. Therefore, I know you want to hear these words. I know you. You want a gift. I know you. You like to touch. I know, and I still love you. I want to do those things for you. We all have that need. And what's our greatest fear? It's also connected, right? Rejection. Isn't it interesting how they're both opposite sides of the same coin? And let's be honest, we live in that tension. We live craving intimacy, craving to be known and loved, but hiding, keeping who we really are, keeping things from other people because we fear if they knew, I'd be rejected. And so what do we do? We play that dance. We try and we step back. We hide. And all the while we're hiding and not letting people in, we're feeling distant. And so the fear of rejection keeps us from intimacy. We long for intimacy and we play this dance. You know what the wedding communicates? The wedding supper of the Lamb. What does the gospel communicate? Jesus knows all that can be known about you. Everything, every deep and dark secret. He knows it all. And he loves you and accepts you. He meets those two needs. He meets the need and overcomes our fear of rejection. Once you experience that in the gospel, not perfectly, that'll be at the wedding supper, right? Once you experience that, you'll have the courage to let yourself be known a little better and to experience the acceptance and love that come from other people. The tension of reject, fear of rejection and the longing for intimacy meet in the gospel and God brings them together in Jesus. I was thinking about that at a wedding. I've done my share of weddings. I've been to weddings. And um, this last wedding I did, uh, I was reminded of a couple of things I thought you need to know. Uh, here are a couple of things you need to know. Men have no idea the preparation and work that goes into the bride getting ready for the wedding. Here's a true story. We're at the rehearsal, and when, when I'm, I've learned over the years, if I'm at a wedding rehearsal, I hang out near the bride because whatever she wants, that's what I'm doing. The groom, nobody cares what he He doesn't have an opinion at the wedding, right? Um, and there's a whole big procedure here. There's websites, there's magazines, there's com everything the bride has to know. But here's kind of a typical conversation. So after the rehearsal's over, right, um, nobody ever comes on time. We'd be at 6, like 7.30. We're getting started with the rehearsal. It only takes 15 minutes. The bride says to the, you know, the girls in the wedding, okay, now the wedding tomorrow night is 6 o'clock. So you need to be here at 5.30 a.m. to start getting ready. Uh, they got a lot of work to do, right? You got hair, you got makeup, you got paint, dent removal, get all dressed for the thing. And it takes a long time. Now, men have no idea, right? Weddings at 6, they're golfing in the morning, hang out. 5.30, maybe they'll shower, put their thing on and show up. Uh, there's a big deal in this, right? All of that is preparation for the wedding. And that is what we see. The bride has made herself ready. And maybe this would be a, a good place to ask, 
since the wedding supper's coming, and that glorious day is on on the way, how are you preparing yourself? Are you like the groom who shows up five minutes before, uh, right off the golf course, stains all over in his golf golf shorts and golf shoes at the wedding? Are you prepared? You know, God's given us an ample warning. Wedding's coming. Be ready. Are you preparing yourself? Now, the ultimate preparation is taken care of in Jesus. We'll talk about that. But how are you doing at getting ready? Knowing Christ may come at any time should influence how we live, how we speak, how we live in our families, how we work at our jobs, how we come and worship at church. How are you doing at being prepared? Extreme intimacy. Well, the next one, extreme authority. And that's the picture that we get of Jesus coming. I think we have a verse here. Kind of describes this. I saw heaven standing open. When heaven opens in the Bible, God's about to act, right? I saw heaven standing open. And there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. Jesus is riding a white horse. Extreme authority. That's what the picture is, right? Extreme crowns on his head. Now, we have different pictures and symbols of authority in our day. Where you fall on the org chart, that's kind of a a sign of authority. A judge has authority. There's a gavel kind of sitting on his bench, right? The, um, not sure you know this, right? The head referee at a football game. How do you know the head referee? He's the one with the white hat. All the other refs, right? All the other, the linesmen and the back judges, they wear black hats with white lines. Only the referee wears a white hat. In a baseball umpiring crew, there's only one crew chief. Jesus Christ is the ultimate authority. And I think the point is being driven home here. He's riding a white horse. You know, the last animal that Jesus rode and read in the Bible was a donkey. Remember that? On Palm Sunday... Jesus rode a donkey into Jerusalem. Donkeys and horses are different. I'm not a farmer, but I know that. I could probably pick them out. Well, in the ancient world, donkeys, as they're often called today, donkeys are beasts of burden. They carried supplies. They carried people's equipment. They carried meals. They carried the tents. They carried all the accessories. They carried the utensils. Donkeys were beasts of burden. Why did Jesus ride a donkey into Jerusalem? Symbolically, Jesus came into Jerusalem bearing our burden, our sin burden, our guilt burden, all of our sin. All of our failures, all of our flaws placed on his shoulder. And to symbolize that, He rides a beast of burden because the one riding the beast of burden was bearing our burden. 
when he returns, he's not riding a beast of burden. When he returns, he's riding a white war horse of victory. And on his, on his head are many crowns. Complete authority. In fact, to show you the authority, let's talk about the extreme judgment that comes. And uh, depending on how you put this together, this would be a description, right? To say, this would be a description of the Battle of Armageddon. That's what's happening here, right? Um, do you notice, though, I, I always scratch my head when I hear descriptions of this great battle and people flying and people. Yeah, there's no battle. Do you notice that? There's no battle. It says Jesus comes when the armies of heaven behind him, and the beast gathers all the armies of the nations of the world. They come, but there's no fight. Jesus shows up, and the first thing we read after he shows up is the beast and the false prophet are bound and thrown into the lake. There's no fight. Jesus shows up, riding the horse of victory, opens his mouth, which bears the word of God, and immediately, every knee bows, and everyone ends in submission to him. And the battle is no battle. The beasts are captive and thrown into the lake of fire. Next chapter, the dragon gets thrown into. Kind of interesting, isn't it? I have a, a poster in my basement that I see almost every day. It's a, not really a Christian poster. It's a, it's a poster for Tombstone, maybe the best movie ever produced. And it's a poster of uh, the Earp brothers, Wyatt, Virgil, and Morgan, and Doc Holliday, played by Val Kilmer. And the four of them are walking with their uh, long trench coats. Now, where are they going? Well, you see, the cowboys have been running roughshod over the town for a, a long period of time. And they're waiting for the Earps at the OK Corral. And the caption over the poster says, Justice is coming. Most mornings when I see that poster, I think of Revelation 19. Because we live in a world where justice doesn't seem to prevail, does it? We hear stories or read reports, if you read the Philly News, about in the neighborhood of Kensington. Where drug dealers promise what drugs can never deliver to kids, and they lead them astray, saying this is where you're going to find fulfillment. And tyrannical, oppressive rulers in this world exploit and oppress their own people and others trying to commit genocide against them. And believe it or not, there are parents who behind the closed doors of their own house brutalize their kids. I don't know what to do about all that. And I feel awful weak when I think about it. But Revelation 19 in the Bible tells me justice is coming. And when justice comes, Jesus, who has blazing eyes that sees everything that can be seen, he not only knows the acts, he knows the words, he knows the motivation behind it, and he's coming 
and justice comes in his wake. Now, that would be a, a pretty tragic story if that was the end. But there's one more point that we need to look at. There's one more point that I need. Revelation 19 speaks of extreme grace. Did you see that? Now, it shows up in a number of different ways. But let me read for you extreme grace. We looked at the beginning of the verse, but let me read the whole verse now. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. But that's not the end of the thought. Here's the rest of it. Fine linen, bright and clean. That's what brides like to wear, right? But check this out. That fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Can I translate that for you? The bride didn't have to get a job and earn enough money to go to the store and purchase the wedding gown. That spotless, pure clothing that speaks of righteousness was given to her. She didn't have to go get some sheep or silkworms and kind of raise them and help them knit or put together enough fabric and then she spin it together and make them. No. Her wedding garments were given to her. She didn't have to take those garments that were dirty and filthy and wash them and scrub them and work for years and years or months and months trying to get them clean enough for the wedding. No, those clean, pure, perfect wedding garments of righteousness, they were given to her. You know how you spell that? Grace. If you're here counting on your efforts to make your garments before God clean, you're in a world of trouble. But if you come admitting that your garments are soiled and your garments aren't enough to cover your sin and shame, you can ask the rider on the right horse if he'd supply a wedding garment for you. Just like the parable that's found in the Gospels, invitations go out to the wedding of the son of the king. But everyone must have the right wedding garments to enter the celebration. I've listened to a, a number of Larry Fleet songs recently. And there's one song that uh, particularly strikes me. It's a song called Records. And what Larry Fleet sings about is all these different records that he's listened to have kind of been taken into him, and those records are actually producing, in some sense, who he is. There's a couple lines at the end of the song that always kind of grip me. Here's what he says. I hope my music moves you as I stand up here tonight. I hope your road goes on forever and your party never ends. I hope that too. 
but I know the only way those words are true. Those words are only true that your road goes on forever. It doesn't end with the birds coming to consume the losers. Your road goes on forever if you've, by grace, received the garments of the heavenly warrior. Oh, yeah, and the party never ends. You see, the wedding supper of the Lamb, unlike wedding receptions, goes on forever and ever. Only one way to get there. The one on the horse provides the way. Let's pray. Father, we confess that some of the images and illustrations and figures are strange to us in this book. But boy, the main points are crystal clear. The main points are salvation cuts both ways. There's justice. And there's grace. Lord, I pray that you'd uh, help us to give up trying to sew or clean our own wedding garments. Help us to admit our filth and failure and flaws and be given the wedding garments that only Jesus provides. Lord, we ask that uh, through the gospel, our road would never end and the party goes on forever. We pray in the name of the warrior.